Hello and welcome to the Age of Victoria podcast. My name's Chris Fernandez-Packham. Let's get on with the show. This is the remastered version of episode two. When I started podcasting, I was very much still learning about sound quality and editing. Looking back, I slightly shudder at how the early shows sounded. I've re-recorded some of these early episodes to give new listeners a better experience. Content-wise, they are pretty much the same, with some tweaks for clarity. What price is too high for ambition? It can be a difficult question. Ambition has driven us throughout history. It can be what makes a person strive for an education or a job or just self-improvement. It has built monuments and civilizations, but it has limits. How far is too ambitious? Does it depend on who you are? Why are the consequences more important? Is it okay for your ambition to kill people? After all, just becoming a president or a prime minister or a czar means you will end up having people killed. Someone has to do those jobs though. If you exclude one person for being too ambitious, how do you know that the next person will be up to the job? Isn't a certain amount of ruthlessness and ambition exactly what's needed in a great leader? What should people with incredible talents and ambition do? If you are an Alexander the Great or a Julius Caesar, that ambition is going to kill people. But you know you are cut from another cloth to most people. Because if people like Alexander or Caesar aren't ambitious, then can civilization move and evolve? Without Caesar, maybe Rome stays a Mediterranean power. And there is no modern France or Spain or Britain. There's no Constantinople, perhaps even no Crusades or contact with China. So maybe the world never moves past the technology social structures and populations of first century AD. Imagine a world that doesn't change from then till now and try to imagine what that's like. The Victorians absolutely had to deal with this ambition problem though. It wasn't an academic issue for them. Cecil Rhodes, Charles Napier, Chinese Gordon, Abraham Lincoln, all people had to put a large dose of ambition and a willingness to see people dead to achieve what they thought were larger goals. Throughout our period, the British Victorians were building an empire, as were the French, Prussians, Russians and North Americans. That often leads to some very uncomfortable questions about who is building an empire and why. And that brings me to another trait that these great men often have, as they call themselves, and that's that they have a sense of self-confidence you could bend iron bars around. That's going to be a key to understanding the age of the Victorians right there. The almost insane self-confidence we're going to see again and again, searching for the source of the Nile or the Northern Passage, journeying up the Amazon, or taking a handful of soldiers and scraped together forces against enormous odds in far-flung parts of the world. Think about What's the biggest gamble you've ever taken? Have you ever staked it all on a risky throw of the dice? When most of us say we have taken a gamble, we usually mean something mundane, like trying a new restaurant or seeing a film or going on a date. 
even the big stuff is usually fairly small in the grand scheme of things. Quitting a job, starting a business or moving house is rarely going to kill you. And even if it does, that is limited to you and your family. What I think we all have in common, though, is a sense of fear of the unknown. And that moment where the urge to jump on a chance becomes unbearable. In 1815, in what has to have been one of the greatest gambles in world history, Napoleon left the island of Elba with a handful of men to reconquer France. Now, I can't really imagine how Napoleon felt when he left Elba on the 26th of February 1815 and landed in France on the 1st of March. I'm not going to go through the whole history of Napoleon. I'm going to assume you know something about his rise from provincial nobody to revolutionary general to first consul, emperor of France and master of much of Europe to exile on Elba. But we do know he passionately wanted to return to France from the boredom of exile. His return started what was known as the 100 Days. With just around a thousand men, he invaded France. That has to be one of the most utterly self-confident things anyone has ever done. Still, he was not leaping in the dark. The returned monarchy had quickly wasted any goodwill it had, and it had treated the officers and men of the old Grand Armée disgracefully. The exiled aristocratic class banished from France during the French Revolution had returned and begun the usual aristocratic practice of extraction, rents and despotism. The old army and people of France were ready for help to fight the tyranny of monarchy, but people's sentiments were mixed and many just feared the chaos of a new war. Napoleon himself was like a lot of men who considered themselves the great men of history. He had a belief in fortune and some greater destiny. He felt he was marked out for greatness. And if you look at him, you can see why. He was unquestionably an intellectual genius who was one of the greatest military commanders in history. At his best, he was nearly incomparable on the battlefield. He regularly appears in the top five military leaders in history. He also possessed a highly scientific mind, immense charisma and a formidable legal brain. It's worth remembering, as we evaluate him and Waterloo, that he was also the sole ruler of France at that time, responsible for all civil affairs in her borders and colonies. He also had to deal with all the international diplomatic relations, reorder the constitution and economy, reform and resupply the military, then at the same time fight a campaign against an international coalition determined to use the resources of their combined nations to destroy him. I think you'll come to see that the surprise is not that Wellington beat Napoleon with Prussian help, but how amazing it is he came so close to actually winning. I'm going to quickly digress as I think we should put the issue of Napoleon's height to rest first. He was five foot four inches in French imperial measure, which was five foot seven inches in British imperial measure. That made him average height for France in the early 1800s. He was not unusually small. A number of modern political leaders are also the same height. For comparison, the Duke of Wellington was probably around five foot ten. A lot of the reason for the confusion 
was a highly effective British propaganda campaign that made him out to be a small, physically weak man, combined with mistranslation over the height from French measure to British Imperial. Later on, Tolstoy, who loathed Napoleon, called him the undersized Napoleon, as well as other unflattering descriptions. Dr. Alfred Adler, a psychiatrist, first proposed the Napoleon complex to describe short men overcompensating with aggression, which has set the myth in stone, but it just wasn't true. Now, let's have a look at France on the eve of the Waterloo campaign, the year 1815. She was, without a doubt, the great power of the age. She had a large population and was agriculturally rich. Like Britain, she was predominantly an agrarian society, with the bulk of the population involved in farming or labour, but was behind Britain in industrial terms. Unlike Britain, France was not a strong naval power. A focus on a continental land power strategy, rather than blue water power projection, when combined with a series of naval defeats, meant France was unable to challenge British naval dominance, which was absolute in 1815. This had a huge impact on French strategy. When naval historians and strategists talk about navies, they will try and define the role of the navy. Navies can be vital in securing trade routes for coastal defence, troop transport, commerce raiding, and if capable of long campaigns far from the home base, they can be called blue water navies. That means they can project power, whether military, commercial or diplomatic, a long way from the home country. That can make them tremendously powerful. The downside is that they are immensely expensive. Just putting a fleet to sea costs more than money. It requires materials to build the ships, and often these are hard to obtain. The British had to import timber from the Baltic. It's not just materials to build, though. Fleets need men and supplies. They need training, secure harbours, support vessels, and, as the author Mahon noted in his immensely influential work, Impact of Sea Power on History, they need a huge merchant marine fleet to give them depth. They also need an arms industry tailored to their specific needs that can keep replacement weapons and ammunition flowing. The upside of this is that if you have a powerful navy, you can do a lot of things that perhaps your opponent can't. In 1815, Britain had that navy and Napoleon didn't. Not only did Britain have that fleet, but it could do the lot. It was a blue water fleet and could strike anywhere. It could also protect commerce, transport troops, raid enemy merchants and blockade enemy ports. Lack of this kind of navy had condemned France to a continental strategy and they missed the opportunity to assume a dominant role in controlling the Mediterranean. The British fleet allowed a global network of trade, colonisation, empire and slavery that brought immense wealth and power to Britain. This in turn meant that the French couldn't control trade routes or prevent British troop movements by sea. As soon as Napoleon returned from exile, almost the first thing that happened was that the Royal Navy swept the seas around France clean of French shipping, getting supplies and allies from overseas 
would be an immensely difficult task for the emperor. Napoleon was already in a difficult position politically when he returned to France. He instituted important reforms and established a civilian government. He was the emperor, but his position was precarious, so the civilian authorities had considerable power. Many of the old order had fled with the king, but many of the officials who remained were deeply ambivalent in their support and loyalties. Napoleon had to topple the monarchy and set off a new government, then fend off the various invasions he expected. So it was not a time for full-on ballot box democracy. It is, though, a mistake to view him as a dictator. He actually had somewhat less power than he did before his previous exile, and would rely more heavily on the civilian government. Napoleon in 1815 was not the same Napoleon who had repeatedly thrashed the powers of Europe in 1800 to 1806. He was older, fatter, slower and less energetic. But the emperor was not to be taken lightly. He was still renowned as a master of war with a glittering list of victories that went from Spain to Russia, from Italy to the Baltic and from the Danube to the Nile. He was not invincible as the disasters in Spain and Russia had proved, but his final defence of France in 1814 had been brilliant. Napoleon in 1815 had a serious problem, though. He needed one thing above all else, and that was time. He needed it because the powers at the Congress of Vienna had declared him an outlaw and would form the Seventh European Coalition against him. He had put out peace feelers, and appeared to be genuinely willing to work within an international framework. The war was not the old world of Europe against France. It was against Napoleon. He needed time to get his veteran soldiers to return to the colours. He needed time to raise new recruits. He needed time to rewrite the constitution and completely restructure the economy. He needed time to get his marshals to return to him. And he needed the former prisoners of war who had been returned to be re-enlisted. That was a real problem for Napoleon because he knew that time was a double-edged sword. The longer he waited, the more troops and supplies his enemies could field against him. In an unfortunate stroke of timing, Napoleon had returned to France during the Congress of Vienna. The former combatants had gathered to create what they claimed would be a new European order of peace and security. It would also just happen to re-establish the old aristocracies, especially in France, because, hey, we've seen what happens when you put the common people in charge. They actually want to try and run things and distribute land fairly, have an even-handed legal system, abolish privilege, and all kinds of nonsense. Luckily, we can fix all that and, oh crap, Napoleon is back didn't we just get rid of him? So the representatives of the European powers issued a declaration outlawing Napoleon and they agreed to place armies of at least 150,000 each in the field to oppose him. The coalition powers agreed on a coordinated invasion of France to start on the 1st of July 1815. Britain and Prussia would assemble their armies in Belgium a territory recently acquired by the United Kingdom of the Netherlands, 
The Russians would assemble an army and advance through Germany towards the French frontier. The Austrians would assemble two armies and advance on the French frontiers. The troops of Bavaria, Baden, Württemberg and Hesse would assemble their troops on the Upper Rhine under the command of Prince Württemberg. Now, try to imagine that you suddenly had to defend an entire country after you've just overthrown the government. You have to cover the frontiers, plan a strategy, set the victory conditions you want to achieve, create an organisational structure, move troops by horse, cart and foot, and work using only hand-drawn maps. If you lose, it might cost you your life, and your country could be conquered or broken up. A lot of us struggle to organise something as routine as an office move. So try to conceive of the scale of the task that Napoleon faced here. When he took over government on the 19th of March, 1815, from the debased and much despised Louis XVIII, he inherited the standing army of just 46,000 combat-ready troops. By the end of May, Napoleon had managed to raise this to 198,000. Think about how difficult some businesses find it to recruit even a handful of low-level staff and now scale it up to the massive numbers Napoleon needed. He needed boots, uniforms, horses, reserves, gun limbers, carriages, bandages, food, muskets and ammunition, maps and a huge array of other supplies. To give you another idea of the scale of the challenge, remember that Napoleon didn't just have to defeat the British and Prussians in Belgium, he had to prepare for an expected Spanish invasion, an expected British naval landing in southern France, guard the Swiss and Italian borders and the frontiers of the Prussian and German states, deal with the Austrian, German and Prussian armies, all in the knowledge that the Allies could potentially field 989,000 men against him. I think you are beginning to see that far from some of the Victorian myths of Wellington thrashing Napoleon at Waterloo and stopping the tyrant, in fact, it was highly unlikely that Napoleon would succeed. Napoleon acted with characteristic brilliance. He carefully formed armies and smaller corps to cover the various trouble spots. He had a choice between a protracted defence of France or to go on the offensive and try to defeat his enemies in detail before they could join up against him. By taking the fight to them, he hoped that significant military victories would force them to the peace table. It is important to understand that everything Napoleon now did was to try to turn military advantages into diplomatic victories. It was a huge gamble though. It had failed utterly in Russia, where he had won battle after battle, but his enemy simply refused to negotiate. Now he was fighting an enemy that wanted to destroy him personally. Some of the coalition, such as Marshal Blücher, hated him and wanted him dead. They would no more negotiate with him than the Allies in World War II would have negotiated with Hitler. It was all or nothing for most of them. Napoleon made things more difficult by making some fateful decisions, ones that would perhaps doom him. 
he appointed one of his best marshals, Louis-Nicolas Davout, as his minister of war. He was perfect for the role, both talented and loyal. His upright character and stern discipline meant he was utterly reliable. He was the right man for the job, but his presence as a marshal in the Waterloo campaign was perhaps invaluable and could very well have changed the course of history. Davout was a supreme military commander, arguably as good as Napoleon at the tactical, operational and theatre levels. His troops were always the most disciplined and well-supplied of the French forces. Had Davout commanded the field at Waterloo instead of Marshal Ney, there would have been no blunders with unsupported cavalry charges, nor would the infantry have been allowed to plod in so many of their attacks. If he had commanded at the Battle of Quatre Bras instead of Ney, he would have understood why the battle was so important and the need for decisive action, something seemingly absent from Marshal Ney's rather slow actions of the day. It is one of the great might-have-beens that Napoleonic history buffs have discussed ever since then. The other killer mistake for Napoleon was appointing Joseph Pouchet as his police minister and de facto spymaster, and Charles Maurice de Talleyrand, very good, as foreign minister. Both were ruthless, brilliant, and utterly self-centred, with no scruples. Both had betrayed masters before, with promises that they were acting in the best interest of France. Both were only absolutely loyal to themselves. Fouché quickly made himself indispensable, but Napoleon both mistrusted and somewhat feared him. On the upside, Napoleon had many of his veterans. He had some capable marshals, who, if not of the calibre of the greats, like Messina, Lanez or Berthier, his much-missed chief of staff, at least included the bravest of the brave, Marshal Ney, and the formidable Marshal Soult. The marshals are a fascinating group. Some of them had amazing careers. Indeed, if not for Napoleon, some of them would be historical superstars, but with the emperor present, they were always outshone. Soult's position was especially interesting, because rather than being given a corps or army command, he was appointed to the role of chief of staff. It was a role he was highly unsuited to, despite his strong performance in the Peninsula Wars. He was not tactically brilliant in the field, like Napoleon or Messina, but he was disciplined, courageous, a capable field commander, and a great organiser of armies. He had won a number of notable victories and had been instrumental in some of the emperor's successes. He even had experience as a chief of staff in Spain. As an army commander, he was highly respected by no lesser general than Wellington. In 1838, long after the wars had finished, he represented King Louis-Philippe at the coronation of Queen Victoria. By then, he was the older Duke of Dalmatia and was pleased to hear cries of vive salt from the London crowd, along with cheers. He met his old adversary Wellington, who is alleged to have seized his arms and said, I have you at last, a tribute to his difficulties fighting the wily marshal in Spain. The evidence for this is a little slim and might be from a fanciful painting where the words are actually uttered by General Hill, not Wellington. Sadly, unlike 
Berthier. Salt struggled as a chief of staff. It was hard for him to translate Napoleon's high-level instructions into concrete, detailed orders. Poor staff work dogged the campaign. Where Berthier ran a tight, disciplined and efficient staff at a cracking pace, Salt was more leisurely. Berthier would send three messengers with the same order to ensure it reached the intended recipient, whereas Salt would only send one. It was also remarked that Salt used low-quality horses and officers for the staff. It is unlikely that Berthier would have allowed the debacles of Grouchy or General Darlion wandering aimlessly at crucial moments. Marshal Ney was another interesting choice. In his prime before 1812, he had been a fierce fighter and exceptional winner of battles. After 1812 and the epic retreat from Moscow, where he earned the title of bravest of the brave, he was not quite the same fiery genius. Napoleon, writing with some hindsight, said of him, quote, Admirable for his bravery and stubbornness in retreats, he was good when it came to leading 10,000 men, but with a larger force, he was a real fool. Always first under fire, he forgot about troops who were not under his immediate command. End quote. When Napoleon marched north to confront the coalition on the 12th of June, Marshal Ney went as a civilian and in disgrace, having betrayed his empire, then the Bourbons. He had been enticed by the emperor to defect upon his return, and the troops cheered the decision of the beloved marshal to rejoin Napoleon. Certainly it's likely that Napoleon had one eye on public opinion when he recalled Marshal Ney. Still, he never really brought Ney back into the inner circle. Napoleon probably never forgave him for leading the marshal's revolt that had originally deposed him. Ney was eventually summoned to join the Emperor on campaign. It was at short notice, and Ney departed France with only one staff officer. Finally, at a meeting with the Emperor on the road to Chalois on the 15th of June 1815, he was suddenly appointed to command the 1st and 2nd Army Corps, with two regiments of light cavalry of the Imperial Guard and eight regiments of Kellerman's heavy cavalry. This gave him a command of 50,000 men and 72 guns. These figures would not stay constant as brigades and divisions were abruptly shifted to command areas as necessity dictated. It was a curiously spur-of-the-moment appointment at a crucial moment in the campaign. Ney did not distinguish himself in terms of tactical or strategic ability during the Waterloo campaign but his bravery was all that could be asked of a hero of France. Sadly, we will see it was an order of nays to Darlion that probably doomed Napoleon before Waterloo was even fought. In fairness to Ney, being given command of an army on the march, on the eve of a critical battle, is a hellish task. He would have had to find out where, on the confused roads of Belgium, his troops, officers and supplies were, meet his officers, take control of them and begin his planning. He had to do all this with horse messengers and handwritten notes. I think for all his faults, history is often unkind to Ney. He was placed in a very difficult situation and the sight of Ney at the end of the Waterloo battle is a display of courage almost unequalled on either side. 
the last of the marshals on the campaign was Marshal Ruchy. He was a brave cavalry leader who had impressed Napoleon at the Battle of Wagram, but had remained an overlooked general. His unexpected elevation to marshal caused immense jealousy from his subordinates. Ruchy had never been good at getting the best from his officers, and this appointment inflamed the hatred that General Van Damme already had for his superior. Worse, Ruchy had no experience of leading infantry or combined forces, and his main achievements had always been under the command of more capable marshals like Davout or Lanaise, or when he was under the direct control of the emperor. The whole myth of the disciplined British against the brave, dashing, but undisciplined French was popular with the Victorians, and perhaps it contained a good deal of truth. Certainly there are accounts that suggest that most troops and junior officers were fanatically loyal to the emperor. A good number were veterans, or former POWs, who were thirsty for revenge, many the victims of torture in captivity. The senior officers were more conflicted, and many feared that the emperor's return meant France was destined for yet more wars. I'm not sure if they considered that actually committing wholeheartedly to Napoleon was the best chance for the French Republic to not just survive, but thrive. The senior generals and marshals were in some ways disliked. They were seen as old and disloyal, men who had owed everything to Napoleon, yet had betrayed him. The return of Ney and Salt to the cause was welcome, but the army was not exactly a cohesive force. It has been described by some historians as being like a fine but brittle sword. It was the best army Napoleon had commanded for years and was filled with veterans, but it didn't have the deep bonds of discipline and trust. It hadn't had much time to practice together, to develop real bonds of trust between the men, and the essential small unit cohesion that helps troops know what their fellows are going to do without having to be told. The French troops were mainly line infantry. The typical French infantryman was armed with a smoothbore muzzle-loading musket and carrying a knapsack. Muskets are accurate at about up to 50 yards, but could still kill at up to 300 yards. A good shooter with a musket could reliably hit a man-sized target at 50 yards, but at 300 yards, aiming was pointless. Soldiers simply fired into the massive enemy. On the principle, it would hit something. Crucially, the musket was reliable, relatively quick-firing, easy to produce in large numbers, and sturdy enough to use in hand-to-hand combat. A blow from a musket could crush a man's skull. Muskets were primitive compared to the highly accurate rifles and machine guns of later armies, but as historian John Elting wrote, quote, in their own time, they made and broke empires. They won and nailed down the independence of the USA. Together with the Roman short sword and the Mongol composite bow, they rank as the greatest man-killers of all history, end quote. Most French infantry carried the Charleville musket, the Fusil d'Infanterie, model 1777, with an overall length 151 centimetres and a triangular bayonet. It fired a French musket ball of 0.69 calibre, 
using a flintlock. It was so popular, it was widely copied. The French version of 1766 was so highly regarded, it became the basis of the iconic American Springfield musket of 1795. Ammunition was cast to an approximate size, reducing accuracy when fired, and there were no interchangeable machine parts, so standardised replacement parts weren't typically available, so repairs needed an experienced gunsmith. The quality of gunpowder was variable, and Napoleon would refuse to release gunpowder producers for active service as their work was too valuable. The flintlock musket revolutionised warfare. They were powerful, large-caliber weapons, and getting hit by one was almost certain to put a man down. Even if he later recovered, they easily shattered bones and shredded organs as the soft lead balls deformed and ricocheted on impact with bone. To increase accuracy, mass volleys were used. On the principle, quantity of fire would make up for low quality accuracy. This created a lethal kiln zone at around the 50 to 150 yard mark and a danger zone at up to 300 yards. But it required intense discipline. Debates raged in military circles about the best formations to use. Napoleon and the French army adapted many of the best practices from other nations and perfected them. Lack of production facilities for muskets and ammunition limited the supplies. Training in France was also of increasingly low quality. In contrast, in Britain, the Industrial Revolution and Imperial Trade Networks meant plenty of ammunition was available. British troops trained for far longer too. There is a misconception that the French fought in large columns. This is not true. French used the two ranks formation, like most other nations, at the tactical level at close range. At a larger level, the various lines would combine to form the attack column. The attack column is not the same as the long, deep marching column. It was more a rectangle formed by the individual companies of soldiers, not a solid mass of men marching in a deep block, like you see on a parade ground or on the road. The columns were supported by screens of skirmishing troops that picked off enemy officers and covered the advance. A small volley might be fired on the way in, and attacks were usually supported by heavy artillery fire and cavalry wherever possible with columns trying to cross the lethal fire zones created by the lines of enemy troops. The precise formations used varied throughout the Napoleonic Wars. The highly trained French army of 1805 was able to adopt various formations that were beyond the abilities of the army of 1815, which didn't have the training to adopt complex formations. Losses of high-quality officers and NCOs only exacerbated the problem. As the French infantry abilities decayed, the army relied more heavily on artillery and cavalry. Napoleon especially loved the heavy cavalry. Big men on big horses with full cuirasses and heavy straight swords. They could weigh over a ton. A well-timed charge by the cuirassiers could smash enemy lines or shatter enemy counter-attacks. He was careful that his marshals and generals ensured that the heavy cavalry 
didn't charge unsupported by infantry or artillery. Napoleon developed the concentrated heavy cavalry doctrine and their use as a breakthrough force throughout his career, but they were supposed to be integrated rather than charging unsupported. French also used various light cavalry, dragoons and lancers. Lancers were especially feared as they could, under the right conditions, reach past the bayonet wall of an infantry square and spear the men, especially if it was too wet to fire the muskets. The British military were so impressed with the lancers, they adopted them for cavalry. Although later reports on combat effectiveness in India were mixed, dragoons would sometimes find themselves burdened with carbines and bayonets, while some light infantry officers and dragoons would be given rifle carbines. The artillery, referred to as guns, were the key to French tactics. As Napoleon said, quote, great battles are won with artillery, end quote. Yet a persistent issue for the French was lack of quality artillery pieces with plenty of ammunition. The French often requisitioned older guns for coastal defence and Napoleon focused obsessively on his artillery. He and senior officers had done a vast amount of work to standardise and improve the artillery to try to make it truly world-class. It suffered dreadfully in Russia and never truly recovered. It seems clear on reflection that British artillery was of a consistently higher manufacturing quality, although it was sometimes less effective. Uniforms varied widely depending on the time period, the whims of the local colonel and the vagaries of supplies and the interference of various reorganisations. Campaign clothing was often tattered and dirty, a world away from the formal regulation clothing worn on parade and nothing like you would see in the films and computer games. The organisation of the Imperial Guard was kept separate and it acted in some ways as an independent army which drew higher pay and was fed the best rations which did cause some grumbling. The combined discipline of the French army, the battlefield brilliance of the fighting marshals and the genius of Napoleon in bringing the maximum force against a limited point of his enemy's lines and shattering them had allowed the French to become in 1805, the finest army in the world. The emperor focused on fast movements, pinning attacks to the front whilst attacking the flanks and rear, and the ability to move his army corps in a dispersed fashion, only to quickly converge at key points. Above all, the emperor was adaptable, expertly selecting the right tools and formations for whatever challenge was presented. He preferred an offensive campaign to allow him to deal an early knockout blow against his enemies, overcoming the logistical shortcomings of the French field armies by winning the war before supplies became an issue. Too often, the French army relied on the brilliant leadership and insane bravery to make up for serious organisational deficiencies. Whatever the shortcomings, Napoleon had to fight in 1815. He would teach the coalition how the master waged war. He had achieved the impossible by seizing the throne from nothing and assembling the armies. Now he moved so fast that the coalition still believed he was in France when he was actually marching to divide the British and Prussians. His goal was to destroy the Prussians 
then the British, before they had time to react. He nearly succeeded. Before I go, though, I hope you are getting a sense of how tough and brave and powerful the French army under Napoleon really was. The French had been the butt of some appalling jokes, and the US President George Bush referred to them as cheese-eating surrender monkeys. This is a gross slur on an extremely brave and hard-fighting nation. The French under Napoleon routinely displayed incredible courage under fire and conquered most of Europe. The repeated charges of the British squares by the French heavy cavalry alone was valour of the highest order, and the British respected them immensely for it. Throughout much of her history, France was regarded as the pre-eminent military and social power in Europe. Join me next time to find out about her famous opponent, the British Army of 1815 under the legendary Duke of Wellington. Thank you for listening, everyone. If you want to get in touch, I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at ageofvictoriapodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Twitter at Age of Victoria. Visit the website at www.ageofvictoriapodcast.com and the show also has a Facebook page and group. Just search for The Age of Victoria. Don't forget to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes. It takes less time than making a cup of coffee. If you want to support the show on Patreon, there's a link in the show notes, or you can go to patreon.com and search for The Age of Victoria podcast or my name. Take care and bye for now.